And as the kids make their way to the class while they're filtering out, I've got a fact check correction to uh, correct from last Sunday's sermon. So actually, uh, Graham, if you're about to bring up that picture, is that still up there from the final four? So I told the story last Sunday of the, our trip to the final four when Louisville was in the final four, and uh, I said Murray State, but it was not Murray State they were playing. They were playing Wichita State. So for all of you shockers in the room, I am sorry that I disrespected Wichita State. And so the story was, the kid said, who's Wichita State? Have you ever heard of them? And so that was part of his, uh, so I apologize to the shockers. It was Wichita State. And, uh, and several people afterwards asked, they said, I didn't close the loop on the story and left it open-ended and wanted to know who won. Well, Louisville won, so the kid was right. So if you have been wondering all week about that, that's, that's covering that up. Now, for this Sunday, we're in Matthew chapter 3, and we're doing a series where we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is a training manual for discipleship, and it's meant to teach us uh, the things we need to know and the things we need to do to faithfully follow Christ, and each chapter... Um, has like a big picture theological truth that Matthew wants us to get, and then some practical ways he wants us to live that out in light of who Christ is. And chapter one is about who the Trinity is, uh, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Chapter two is about how we come to know him through natural and then supernatural revelation. Or, and uh, chapter three is about beginnings. How do we begin this life with God? The life of Christ, where does it begin? And chapter three tells us that it begins with repentance and baptism. That's how it begins. And so this week we're going, last week we looked at repentance. This week we're going to look at baptism. And uh, a couple weeks ago we used the the three kind of images or metaphors that if you want to connect with what Matthew's saying um, from the Old Testament, you have to learn to hear the music, you got to learn to see the images, and then get it like you get the joke. And so we're going to kind of unpack that a little more this morning, because what we're going to look at this morning is Jesus' baptism. What did his baptism mean for him? And then we're going to look at our baptism. What does our baptism mean for us? And as we do, we want to hear the Old Testament music that's playing in the background and actually see some of the images of him coming out of the water, the heavens open, the dove descending, and then we want to get it, feel the force of what it means to live the baptized life. So if you have your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 3, and we're starting verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the way we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' baptism first. What did it mean for him? And then we'll look at ours. What does it mean for us? And as we look at what it meant for him, so Jesus' baptism first, we want to set the stage so you can kind of see what's happening. So we'll set the stage, and then we'll look to see the dove and then hear the voice. So first, let's set the stage. Now, Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4 are all about beginnings. How does this life of faith start? And then the context is they're in the wilderness. 
And that's an important background to keep in mind. It's in the wilderness. They're on the other side of the Jordan. The wilderness is a place of testing, a place of training, a place of difficulty, temptation, a place where you have to learn to depend on the Lord. So it begins in the wilderness. But then it's interesting because John is going on the other side of the Jordan, and then in essence he's calling the people of Israel to go back out on the other side of the Jordan and in essence be baptized, re-enter the land through the Jordan. And so what we see here is a couple times throughout the Old Testament, some of the music, the background music you want to hear, is it's it's at the Jordan where there's key transition points from one leader to the next. So it's at the Jordan where it transitions from Moses to Joshua, and then transitions from Elijah to Elisha. And so here you can see the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus, and John is actually calling Israel out uh, to the wilderness to re-enter and to become new. But then notice some of the, the drama. Jesus comes to John, and John wants to stop him. Say, wait, what are you doing? You, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And then notice how Jesus responds. He in essence says, let it be so. This is to fulfill all righteousness. And you see some of John's kind of hang up. I mean, this is a repentance. Uh, repentance is what's needed, but what does Jesus need to repent of? They're confessing their sins, but he has no sins to confess. He doesn't need the forgiveness. But Jesus says this must fulfill all righteousness. So what does that mean? So you think righteousness, think um, being put right. You remember in the fall, there was four great brokennesses that we experienced because of sin. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with ourself is broken. Our relationship with others is broken. Our relationship to the world is broken. And righteousness is, is having each of those relationships put right. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to walk this path that my people have to walk. I'm going to identify with them, and I'm going to walk this path so we can begin to initiate putting to right all of these broken relationships. And then he's the one. He's the spirit-filled bringer of righteousness. So restoring these relationships. So he's going to identify with his people. He's going to walk the very same path that they have to walk. And just kind of think about the, the symbolism of the moment, that here Jesus is going to enter into these waters. You know, what were those waters? Those were the waters that symbolically the people were coming and they were washing away their sins. So these are sin-stained, polluted waters. And John would stop Jesus from coming in. No, you don't, don't come in here. This is, this is dirty. This is saturated with people's sins. Don't come in here. You stay away. And then Jesus intentionally is going to enter into the waters and go down under them and then come up. You know, I find it interesting that John wants to keep Jesus out, but Jesus insists on entering in. And one of the things we're going to see all throughout Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is going to enter in. He's going to come to where people are and enter in. There's no place too dark. There's no waters too stained. And so it's worth thinking about. I think where, um, where in your, is there any place in your life that you're trying to keep him at arm's length? Well, he's going to enter in. Or is there any situation? I think one of the great challenges that all Christians have to wrestle with, what arenas and areas do we follow in his footsteps and enter into? Or where do we 
hold back. But he's going to enter in. So set the stage. It's in the wilderness. They're coming out to confessing sins. It's to be done to fulfill all righteousness. He's going to be the one to bring righteousness so these great relationships are repaired and put back together. And then notice what happens. The heavens open and then the Spirit descends like a dove. So see the Spirit come down like a dove. You're the heavens opening. And then um, one of the things in this whole section is there's so many echoes background music of, of themes and melodies from the Old Testament. It's almost overwhelming. Uh, when I was trying to put it all together, it kind of made my head spin and smoke started coming on my ears because I couldn't quite hear the melody. It was like, I don't know how to get my mind around all these different echoes and tunes that are be playing. But this first one, when the heavens open, this is Isaiah 63, where they cry out, oh, that you would rend the heavens. Open up the heavens, and then you come down. That's the, the call for the, the Spirit of the Lord to come, that the heavens would be open. And then notice the imagery. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. And you think, all right, why? Why the dove? You know, it could be an echo to Genesis 1 and 2, where the Spirit, it was fluttering over the waters. This uh, could be dove, could be an echo to the, the flood and Noah. Uh, it was the dove that was sent out that brought uh, Noah, you know, the, the twig leaf to let him know it had been abated. Or, you know, there's dove imagery all throughout the Song of Songs, that it's imagery of the beloved. And so what's the background music? But one of the things you see here is when the dove descends, one of the key themes in the background is Isaiah 11, chapter 2, or chapter 11, verse 2. That's one of the kind of... Um, the paradigmatic verses in the Old Testament of what it means to be spirit-filled. So Isaiah 11, verse 2 is, And the Spirit of the Lord shall uh, rest on him. And then there's this cycle of six different things. It'll be a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this verse is, is telling us this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's going to come, and then there's kind of three categories that he uses. First is the category of it's going to fill his mind, the category of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. This is that he's going to be filled with the Spirit, so he has the power and the ability to lead as a judicial authority, as a king. Uh, he'll have understanding and wisdom. Understanding meaning he'll be able to see a situation and unravel what's really at the heart of that situation. And then wisdom to be able to know how to make sense of things. It's uh, kind of the key characteristic of public leaders, of kings, of people who lead in the Old Testament, is that they become wise and understanding to be able to get at the heart of the matter. And you know how this is just in life. You know, think about, you know, 90% of the arguments you have with anyone are not about the actual thing. So like... Marital disputes where you're arguing about where you squeeze the toothpaste, it's not about toothpaste. There's something deeper underneath the surface. The arguments you have in church about the colors of carpet, we don't have carpet, so we don't argue about the colors of carpet, but other things you can argue with in church is actually not about that thing. Before we moved here at our church in Alabama, when we started there, I was the sixth pastor in six years, and there had been two major church splits in 10 years in a little bitty country town. What was, the, what was the argument over? Well, on the surface, it was worship music and, and style. But that was just the dog that got kicked. That wasn't the actual issue. 
There was something underneath the surface. And you know this about work. When you have disputes with employees and fellow employees and bosses so often, it's not the thing you argue about that's really the thing. And wisdom and understanding is the ability to be able to see through those things to get at the heart of the issue. So he's going to be wise. But then notice the next thing, the next couplet is that he will have counsel and might. He not only will be wise, he'll have the power to do something about it. Counsel is a military term for strategy. He'll be able to, to uh, devise a plan and then have the might to execute the plan. He'll be able to strategize and execute. And then the third couplet is that he'll have knowledge in the fear of the Lord. These are heart categories. Knowledge in the Bible is not just head knowledge, it's intimate relational knowledge. So like Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. You get it. Um, knowledge intimate, relational categories, and then fear of the Lord. So it's he'll, the Spirit-filled life, when the Spirit descends on Jesus, he's going to have a mind that's shaped by wisdom and understanding, a heart that's shaped by intimate love and fear, reverence for the Lord, and then the will, the ability to accomplish his purposes. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So even as you think about that, think about what of those three do you need more of in your life? You know, one of the interesting things you look at kind of church history over the last hundred years, there's been a lot of talk about what are the evidences of being filled with the Spirit? You know, what are the manifestations of that? And some are kind of unique and some are interesting. But what you see here in Isaiah is these are the marks of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit is descending on him, letting know he's the one who has the judicial wisdom to bring his kingdom. He has the military strength and power and then the heart and the love to do it. And then notice the Spirit is the one who connects heaven to earth. He's the connecting point. Heaven's open and it's the Spirit who connects us heaven to earth. And then you hear the voice of the Father. The heavens open, the Spirit descends like a dove, and then the voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And there's so many echoes in the Old Testament from this. The music is a compilation of a couple different things. Like in Genesis 22, when the Lord talks about Isaac being Abraham's beloved, his unique, his beloved son. You got Psalm 2 where it talks about the Lord's anointed who he's going to set on his throne and he's going to anoint him over the nations. And then you also have Isaiah 42 where it says, this is my suffering servant. Behold, the one with whom I am well pleased. So all these things are just lurking in the background. And one of the amazing things is you're, you're hearing the sounds of a symphony that's been played before. So like Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is this incredible messianic symphony with these three great movements. In chapters 7 through 39, it's the song of the king who's going to come. And that's being played here. And then in chapters 40 through about, well, I don't have it written down, 55, 8, 58-ish, somewhere in there, it's the, the song of the suffering servant. That the suffering servant will come and he's going to bear our sins and iniquities. And then following that is the song of the anointed conqueror. He's going to come to bring about the Lord's kingdom. And all three of those movements are being played in the background when you hear, hear the voice. So what this means for Jesus is that his baptism is a, uh, a public declaration of who he is and what he's come to do. He is the Lord's son, and he's come to usher in the Lord's kingdom. He's bringing it. And for us, there's a couple things that, the, that Matthew wants us to learn. One, there's an argument for who Jesus is. Matthew is holding up the different testimonies. 
You know, in Jewish law, you needed two different witnesses to confirm, um, confirm someone in their testimony. And Matthew is giving us the different witnesses. You have the witness of the Scripture. You have the witness of John the Baptist. And then you have the witness of God the Father himself. But then as you look at this, a couple things that just really struck me this week as I was thinking about that text. Notice how it's God the Father who speaks his affirmation for his son, both it's public, it's verbal, and uh, it's directed so others can hear. It's the father expressing his love for the son publicly. So think about in, in your life, when was the last time you were publicly praised by someone that you admired? You know, how did it make you feel? Did it make you feel good? Make you feel a little uncomfortable? Did you not like the inten- uh, attention? You know, it's interesting to think about how much of our life is actually driven by this undercurrent to receive the affirmation from the people that we want to give it to us. You know, the fascinating kind of read through history, and so it's interesting how many kind of historical figures were driven by this desire to be affirmed and praised by someone in their life. Often it's their actual father. Like Winston Churchill spent the first 40 years of his life desperately trying to grasp the affection of his father that he never got. And then you think, like, it's, it's always intriguing to me to watch how every major sporting event, every interview that they do of every character in that sporting event, how do they almost always frame their motivation for winning? Nobody believed us. No, everybody doubted us. Nobody thought we could do it. We we're going to prove them wrong. And no matter who it is, they all say that. You're sitting there thinking, you were 14-2. and two. You have the NFL MVP as your quarterback. Nobody doubted you. But they have got to be fueled like we didn't receive the praise. We were, and we're driven by it. I think one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my life was Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame acceptance speech. You know, growing up, I was of the Jordan era. So I was a kid that had Jordan all over my room and had posters everywhere of him and would run around with my tongue hanging out trying to, you know, flip the basketball over my head, trying to be like that. This past Christmas break, I had Cynthia sit down and said, you have to watch Michael George's Playground and come fly with me in all these movies from the late 80s to understand my childhood. And but in his Hall of Fame acceptance speech, I mean, this is the moment to celebrate and to praise. He's, it was this vindictive And he just started listing all the people who doubted him in his life. Even his 10th grade JV high school coach, who put him on the JV instead of varsity, called him out my name. You didn't believe in me. I showed you. You didn't believe in me. I showed you. And it's just a, a sad way to live. And then here what you have is you have God the Father speaking his love and affirmation for the Son. And I'm convicted by that because... uh, Here you see the Father being vocal in His praise. So you can't let things like gender stereotypes say, well, I don't do that kind of thing. I'm a man. We don't share our feelings. Well, if God the Father does, maybe you can too. Or you can't allow just personality stereotypes to say, well, you know, words of affirmation, that is not my love language. I don't speak that language. I don't know it. 
You know, I'm a, I'm a seven. We don't do that kind of things. Or I'm an introvert. We don't talk like that. Maybe it might be hard for you, but maybe the way God wants you to grow in grace and to become more like him is to try to become more verbal and more vocal. And then also think about in your own life how much, how many things do people do when the desire for that praise is really what's fueling it? You see this in kids who go off to college. Uh, they, they can go off to college and they'll start making social decisions that people in their life will question and say, why? why are you doing this? And so often it's because they want the praise of a certain group. Or even intellectually, go off to college and start all of a sudden, you know, one freshman philosophy class, and now you're an expert on all these things. And then you say, what are you thinking? And just whether they, there's, there's a certain group that they want the praise of. And so here, the father is giving the praise to the son, and what I find so fascinating is he's giving it before he's accomplished his work. This is not at the end of the mission accomplished. This is at the beginning of the mission accomplished. You know, have you ever been in a context where somebody has done something and like, you know, their family and their loved ones are so uh, excited for them? One of my good friends that I graduated with, his name was Ant, and uh, Anthony, we called him Ant. Um, and Anthony was the first person in his entire extended family to graduate from college. Nobody in, in, in any relation that they could name had graduated from from college, and at his graduation, his entire extended family descended on our home, and it was going, they were going to have a party, and we could be there if we wanted or not, and uh, there was a threat of rain, and so they almost had to move the graduation ceremony into the gym, and that would have meant every graduating student would only gotten two tickets, and that, like his grandmama said, this will not happen. Because we are here to celebrate my baby boy. And they were going to celebrate Ant. And what's interesting though is that was at the end of the achievement. And then here, Jesus is being celebrated by the Father before the mission is accomplished. And so it just makes you wonder, what did that... I mean, I don't want to get into like Freudian psychoanalyzing Jesus' emotional state and all that. But just think about how that would free you to know you live un, in the light of the acceptance and the I am well pleased of the Father. And you can live under that shadow. That's what the baptism is. So what Jesus' baptism meant for him is it was an inauguration and an anointing and a commissioning to start his ministry. And then what that means for us is it's also a, an inauguration. It's a beginning. It's an initiation. So we can follow in his footsteps and live uh, the Christian life. So what is our baptism? Our baptism, in essence, is gospel theater, where it's a living metaphor for the great gospel movements and the meaning of salvation. It's visible words meant for us to physically experience uh, the gospel. So a couple things just to think about, you know, for us when we're baptized. You know, why, why water? What's the symbolism uh, of the water? And the symbolic picture, what the water is doing is it's helping us understand how the gospel deals with three of the great problems that sin causes. So sin causes us to be stained and dirty, it causes us to be guilty, then it ultimately leads to death. So you can kind of see the water is symbolic of washing away the stains. Sin's dirt, it stains, it washes it away, it makes us clean. 
But, but the water also is symbolic of judgment. You know, think in the Old Testament how often water is used for judgment. So it's the water that comes in Noah. It comes in judgment. When you look at the Exodus that we're going through in men's and women's Bible studies, notice how um, their Exodus is framed by water. Their first, the Nile is a place of death and destruction, and then God leads them through the sea. He makes a way so they pass through the sea into his presence. But the waters are opened up for them, but it's waters of judgment on Pharaoh. And so they pass through, but the judgment falls on them. And so one of the things we see in baptism, what we're celebrating, is that the waters of judgment, the, the, or the fire of judgment, fell on Christ, and now the cleansing water can fall on us. And then water is a symbol of life. Water deals with the death problem. That's what you see in Revelation 22, from the throne, it's going to flow this river, but it's a river of life where we then can find life. So water is symbolically dealing with the problem that sin causes that we're stained, we're dirty, that we fall under judgment, and that it ultimately leads for death. It's reversing all of those things, cleaning us and making us new. You know, the cleansing just reminds us that we've been washed, we've been cleansed, that God is always calling his people to him. And one of the things he's saying is that even though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Even though they're red like Clemson, they can be white like wool. He's calling them to cleansing. Now, the next thing is notice we go when we do baptism, we go under the water. Under the water. Why under? And what that's symbolizing is that we've been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So we're one with him in death and resurrection. It's symbolizing the great movements of the gospel that we go down and then we rise. We're submerged to symbolize our union with Christ and his death and burial. And then we rise up to symbolize that we've been given new life. It's kind of the gospel movements in Romans 6. And then here at Trinity, we practice, you know, immersion uh, into and then up and out. But the important thing is not so much that the how, the mechanics, how much water you use. The important thing is, do you get the symbolism? And you can get the symbolism either by, you know, some people pouring, where it gets poured on you. That's the same symbolism, that on the cross, the wrath was poured out on Jesus. And so on us, the water of life is poured out on us. The, the mode is not important as, as you feel and understand and appreciate the symbolism, that you are united to him in his death. And so we do immersion and rising again because we think it's one of the best ways to symbolize that. But it's not the only way. And we, even this past week, we're thinking about how we can be um, sensitive to people in different situations. Like our, um, we're in talks with our oldest daughter about baptism. And uh, we're starting to learn. She has, it's kind of taken us a while. I mean, poor first kids. You, it just takes you a while to figure things out. Like, uh, I'm allergic to citrus. And uh, they asked my mom, how'd you find out he was allergic to citrus? She's like, well... You know, for the first five years of his life, every day I gave him apple juice, he was okay. Every day I gave him orange juice, he threw up everywhere. So eventually you just put it together. And so we're kind of hearing there's certain just sensory things that kind of set her on edge, like loud music and different things. And she was talking about baptism and started actually getting like physically panicked because she's scared about, you know, going backwards under the water. And like what, you know, just the sensory element of it. And I was like, well, there's different ways we can do it. You don't necessarily have to go back in and under. And she says, but daddy, what if you accidentally drown me? <laughs> and I said, I promise I will not accidentally drown you. I promise. Uh, but actually, 
that fear, maybe, maybe she's connecting more to the meaning of what it actually symbolizes than I'm giving her credit for. Because the symbol is that you are united to Jesus' death and that you rise again into new life. So that's why we go under the water. You're dying to the old self and rising to the new. Then why in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit? Do you notice how in the passage all three members of the Trinity are present? Jesus is there. The Spirit descends and the Father speaks. And so uh, when we're baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're being drawn into this family. It's the seal and the family name is put upon us. The family name has now been placed on him. And we hear, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And so as a Christian, every time you think about the baptism, in essence, the most important thing is not have you been baptized, but do you live as one who is baptized? And so what we do is we remember, every time we think about baptism, we remember that Jesus was plunged under the waters of judgment so that we could be plunged uh, under the waters of life. And we remember that he is, uh, it's because the beloved son has made a way so that we can call God our father. And that we remember that just as the spirit descended upon him, he now can live in us. And we remember that those who were once outside the family of God due to our sins now have been brought back in. And we are now brothers and sisters to all who have been baptized into that same name. And we now have a new spiritual home and a spiritual family. So the first question is, have you been baptized? This is the initiation. This is the beginning. We're still trying to figure out just how we work that into the rhythm of our church life. We do baptisms every fall kickoff. So uh, the, first, the, the first week in August, after the kids go back to school, so like the third week in August, we do it as we kick off the new fall year, and then are thinking of other times where we can have a staple where you can be baptized. So if you haven't, it's something you want to pursue. You can come and you can talk to us. But then for all of those who have been baptized, do you live as one who is? A couple ways to think about what it means to live as one who has been baptized. I don't know if you're familiar with Sinclair Ferguson, who's... Uh, the wonderful theologian, pastor um, from Scotland, and uh, he actually taught my ecclesiology class, which was one of the best classes in seminary I ever had. He was telling the time that he was doing a PhD seminar at Westminster in Philadelphia and teaching on ecclesiology, and one of his students was a student from South Korea, and his name was Timothy. And uh, one day, just over lunch, he would say, so Timothy, I wish I could do the beautiful Scottish accent, but I won't even try but he'd say, Timothy, tell me, tell me what, what's your real name? And Timothy kind of looked at him and said, Timothy, it's my real name. And then he kind of really, he said, well, no, 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 I mean like the name that, you know, your, your fa- what was your given name by your family when you were born? And he said, no, my real name is Timothy. And he kind of realized they were kind of talking past and Timothy was kind of smiling and said, no, Timothy is my real name. And uh, he kept trying to pry and get it out. And eventually Timothy just smiled and said, but Dr. Ferguson, Timothy was the name I was given at my baptism. That is my real name. And then Sinclair said, it just struck me, he actually is teaching the professor about the meaning of baptism. This is my real name now. This is who I am. The old is gone and the new has come. I'm a new person. Or a couple other ways you can think about what does it mean to live the baptized life. J.I. Packer says that every time you, in a small way, you die to yourself 
and something else rises, you're, you're, that's the baptized life. Something is dying and something is rising again. And so like what we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at Herod, King Herod, his, the dynamic of King Herod's life is I will sacrifice you for me. But the dynamic of King Jesus' life is I will sacrifice me for you. And every time you do that, even in a small way, that's living the baptized life. You're baptized. You're, something is dying to self and something else is rising again. And one of the challenges of having to think about this all week is even just yesterday, Cynthia was gone and I was about to pat myself on the back because I fed the kids lunch. Aren't you proud? All four of them. And those moments where I was on the verge of about to get so frustrated and angry and lose my temper, all that I could hear in the background of my mind was, you're baptized, live the baptized life. Let your anger, frustration, impatience, it's got to die to self and then let, you know, love and all these things. I'm like, ah, stop talking to me, whoever you are. There's living the baptized life in a small way. Let these things die so something else can rise. Or you think about it like this, Augustine in the fourth century when he was preparing uh, people for baptism. They would do baptism once a year. It would always be at Easter and it would be this kind of climactic celebratory thing. And Lent was originally designed to prepare people for baptism because they found, you know, when the church was predominantly in a, a Jewish context, for the most part, they already had all the mental categories. They just needed the lights to come on. But then when you had people starting to come into the church from the Greco-Roman pagan context, they had needed a whole series of being taught just the basics. They didn't have the, the categories. So Lent became, uh, John Chrysostom called Lent, in essence, my spiritual training camp. It's, it's spring training to get them ready so they can be, be Christians. And uh, the way it was set up, what Augustine would do is he'd walk them through the, the Apostles' Creed during Lent, and then the, the week after they had been baptized, the week after Easter, he would slowly teach them the Lord's Prayer. And he says, the Lord's Prayer is your daily morning baptism for your soul. And so what it means is you, you, you wake up every morning and then you say the Lord's Prayer and it gives you a mental and soul, it's like a warm bath for your soul to wash away. So you say your kingdom or, or your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done and just let it wash away all the self-centered just kind of accretions that will cling to you. You let it wash you away. And then you stand up in the morning and you, and you say, um, Lord, give us this daily bread, so wash away my anxieties. Uh, forgive us as we forgive others, so wash away my, my anger and my hard hearts. And then lead us not in temptation, protect us, help us. And he said, what you, you repeat the, the Lord's Prayer every morning, and that's your daily bath, your daily baptism, washing away. So that's what it means. Do you live the baptized life? You know, what it is is a public declaration. You know, one, one way I like to explain it to the kids is it's the time where you put on your jersey to let you and the, the world know what team you're on. So like you sign up for soccer at the Y and you go and then they give you your jersey and here's your purple jersey because you're on the purple dinosaurs. And then you put it on and that lets you know this is the team we're on. So baptism is putting on Christ so we and the world know whose we are. And it's such an orienting truth to always remember whose we are. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the tremendous truths that baptism symbolizes for us. So we ask that you would help us to live the baptized life. Pray for anyone who's come in here this morning 
and they are desperately trying to win the approval of another, of others. I pray that you would set them free from that manic quest. Help them to confess their sins and to live in the light of the, the well done. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased that comes to us through Christ from the Father. I pray for anyone here who um, they would like to be more verbal and more vocal in their praise. I pray that you would help them, give them the courage to speak words of life when they have the opportunity. I pray for anyone who's come into this room and they know that they're, they're sin-stained. And we ask that uh, you would give them the, the courage to repent of those sins. And thank you for sending your spirit to wash them and make them new. I pray for anyone who's coming into this room and they know they need the marks of the spirit, need to be filled with the spirit and to have wisdom and understanding. So if anybody's come in and they know there's a situation in life, they just don't have the wisdom or the understanding to know how to deal with this situation Send your spirit to give them the wisdom they need. Or maybe they don't feel, they feel like they know what they should do. They just don't have the, the power, the ability. They don't have the power to do what they know they should. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit so that they can do what they know they need to do. I pray for anyone who's come in and they know that what's lacking in their heart is the love and the reverence, the fear, the genuine heart affection for you and your word and your people and your gospel, I pray that you would send your spirit to inflame in their hearts a love for you. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.